We all know the truth. More connects us than separates us. But in times of crisis, the wise build bridges, while the foolish build barriers. You raise walls, I destroy them. Let's see who prevails. Just because something works doesn't mean that it cannot be improved. I say we take off and nuke the entire site from orbit. It's the only way to be sure. Allow my sword to join you in the fight against evil. The world needs us to chase dreams. We have to dedicate ourselves each and every single day to this fight because I can't do it alone. You, the people, have the power. The power to create machines. The power to create happiness. You, the people, have the power to make this life free and beautiful. To make this life a wonderful adventure. Then in the name of democracy, let us all unite! Welcome to Skiffy Panda Show Signal Boost. My name is Paul Weem. I'm here today. I'm here with Teresa Farrakh. Say hello, Teresa. Hi. How you doing, Paul? I'm doing great, and we're here to talk about your book, Where Oblivion Lives, which will be coming out shortly, or by the time of this uh, broadcast, will be out in all good stores. So why don't you tell the readers about your world and your characters? Well, Where Oblivion Lives is really a continuation of the Los Nephilim novellas. What happened was um, I had these characters in my head from a previous novel that I had written, which did not sell. So I was kind of in between books. Nothing was really catching on with agents or editors. So I decided to try the, um, the novella route. And I figured that if I could work them into a novella, it might be interesting to do. So I wrote a story with Diego, and that was in Midnight Silence. And I was really surprised and very pleased when it sold to Harper Voyager to their impulse line. And the really um, fun thing about the story was, is I just, I quit trying to ram it into a rigid, mode of uh this type of story or that type of story i just i kind of let myself go with it and i sort of patterned them all on the old shadow series i know most people are too young to remember it but it's an old radio series that uh, yeah um that was think back in the 30s and the 40s, and my father was really into it. And he would always go around, only the shadow knows, you know, and we would all crack up, and it was a lot of fun. Well, the cool thing about the shadow, though, was is it had all these, these different um, enemies, and they all had this little bit of a supernatural flair to them. So I thought, why don't I take these characters, and instead of making it just so, um, so it's such a, rigid storyline and trying to make it either epic fantasy or uh, contemporary fantasy or any different kind of fantasy to just do my own thing with it. So I kind of patted them on the shadows and let it roll. And it was just fun to write. So I was really surprised when, when David Pomerico asked me if uh, I had some other ideas for other novellas with them, and I told him I could come up with something very easy. And the characters just work real well together. So I set it in the 30s during the Spanish Civil uh, right before the Spanish Civil War, because I wasn't um, 
I'm more familiar with World War II, but since the characters in the original book were Spanish, I wanted to keep them Spanish. So I did a lot of research into the Spanish Civil War and especially the events leading up to the war, which is where the first three novellas and the novel Where Oblivion Lives is all set during those early 30s, just prior to the war. And it was a real fascinating period of time because Germany and Italy had um, were both moving toward fascist governments. And, and as they did, Spain was just in kind of a push-me-pull-me period where um, they were divided like everyone else, into which way they wanted their political situation to go, either toward communism or toward fascism. And it was just just really interesting on how all the countries affected the others. So I would get lost sometimes in research more than anything else. So I think the hardest thing to do is to keep the story focused on the characters and focused on their adventures. And then I tried to um, put in enough history to give it some flavor and also to show how the events were layered. Um, so for where Oblivion Lives picks up a year after the three novellas. And I wrote them all, basing them on the shadow. I wrote them all so that um, you could read one, put it down, and pick it up later and read the other. So each one is in a complete story. And uh, so you don't have to read the first one to read the second one. But if you know a little bit, it, there's some Easter eggs in Where Oblivion Lives for the folks who've read the novellas. Um, just little side note things that I didn't have room to explain in the novellas, but I've got room to deal with in the novel. In the novel itself, in Where Oblivion Lives, the book centers around Diego, who is, yes, <laughs> um, half demon and half angel, Nephil, and uh, he has all kinds of personal hang-ups of his own, but he's in a very fortunate position. He has a very loving spouse, Miguel, and uh, he also has a young son that he's trying to raise, and he's also being tormented by a violin that he hears playing in his dreams, and that's where the supernatural kind of seeps in, and in order to stop these horrible nightmares that are, are being resurrected from his um, post-traumatic stress disorder from World War One, he goes in search of the violin and things get kind of gothic and weird and it was just, it bordered on horror at times, but it gave me an opportunity to explore how, um, how the stress of past battles can affect people um, because even though they're supernatural, they still are mortal as well. And they suffer the same effects from uh, extended wars as the mortals do. So it's just, it's, it was kind of a way to explore that trauma and also the trauma of World War One, not just on individuals, but on the world as a whole, because it was just such a traumatic conflict. 
Oh, 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 sure. I mean, the, the whole idea of the lost generation and how a lot of artists and writers were born out of out of out of the trenches and out of the horror of a all-consuming global conflict that just ground down humanity. I can see, I can I can see how you layered that into the characters. What one, one one thing that I don't think it can necessarily play, and I wanted you to talk about a little further, is the the promptings and the underlyings and the development of. Diego and Mikel's relationship as a same-sex marriage in a in a world and a time where that is not exactly uh, well received by anybody. So I was curious as to your thoughts as like how you came to do that, how you came to write that and develop the characters through their intense relationship. Right. Well, in in Where Oblivion Lives, I handled it some because Diego feels cheated. Mikel is one; he's always pushing boundaries, and um. During the 30s, well, actually more toward the 20s and the late 20s, there were a lot of um, people were coming out more. There were, especially in Germany, there were a lot of gay and lesbian magazines coming out. The night scene in Berlin was getting very um, relaxed, or not very relaxed, but more relaxed toward um, LGBT folks. And, and it was just... It was an opening up that was beginning to happen. And with Miguel, that was the one thing I've always loved about Miguel is he sees that as the future and he's, he's very open and he wants to be open and he wants to be himself without, um, other people judging him for who he loves. And Diego is much more traumatized and has been abused much worse. And he's much deeper in the closet than Mikel is. So they kind of play well off of each other based on that with Mikel always trying to draw Diego out and Diego really isn't sure how far is, how far to go and be safe. Because I think that's what he wants um, more than anything, is that feeling of safety. And uh, the two of them together are just wonderful. Um, I tried to base them. I know several gentlemen who are in very long-term loving relationships. And, and they were who I thought of a lot when I was writing the scenes with Miguel and Diego. And I've let them... In, in sanctuary in the, the Nephilim's town. They live more or less openly. They live together. They're raising uh, Diego's son, Raphael. But as the stories progress, they're going to have to go underground again because in the next novel, Carved from Stone and Dream, they've lost the war and they're having to... Uh, um, moved to France for a period of time. And we all know that in World War II, the Germans took France. Uh, so in the third book especially, I'll be addressing more of what happened to mainly homosexual men during that period. Um, the laws in Spain and France and Germany were directed primarily at men. Um, mainly, I have a friend. She has a she has a theory that it's because men were more valued than women, and I think that there's some a substance to that. But it also goes back 
to the fact that men tend to view women as being naturally affectionate. Uh, I've read several um, different articles based on, on that. Also in Germany, especially women, even lesbians were considered able to carry on the um, main task of having babies. That was the whole thing the Germans saw during the 30s, the Nazis saw the women as being that their primary value is to carry on the bloodlines of the fatherland. So that's why women were not persecuted as much. But when you stop and think about it, having to live in in a closet like that all the time, that's a form of persecution. And it was also that women were paid much, much less than men, so that if a woman or two women were living together, they didn't have the same opportunities, um, financial opportunities to keep their heads above water as men would. Meanwhile, the laws against men were highly punitive, and the German police and the French police would keep lists of men found in certain locations and when you were put on that list as a homosexual once the Germans got them those men were taken to the concentration camps um, so that's what the third book will be dealing a little more with that so I'm, try- I'm not trying to shy away from any of the ugliness that went on but at the same time, I want to show how people persevered in spite of a lot of the tyranny that went on. It was just really an awful time. And if you if you read about it, you can draw a lot of parallels to today, especially as I was doing some of the research for the car from Stone and Dream um, when the Spanish refugees from the Civil War were moving into France, it was just, um, it was horrific because the French didn't know what to do with them. They were completely unprepared for entire caravans of refugees to be crossing the mountains. They, um, they put them on the beaches, uh, in essentially concentration camps because they had no place else to put them. The French didn't really want them in France at that time because they didn't want the Spanish taking jobs from the French. Uh, you're hearing some parallels here. <laughs> I am indeed hearing some parallels to the present. Yeah, I mean, it, it really is. And it's just, I don't know. Sometimes it's, just I'm not sure whether to be horrified or fascinated how we just keep repeating the same um, the same things over and over again. It's like we can't ever learn from our past mistakes. But anyway, um, the the Spanish really had a hard time. They could not stay in in Spain with Franco coming forward. The number of people murdered under Franco's regime. It was just astronomical. And those who weren't murdered were placed in prison in concentration camps there in Spain, and they were forced to work um, in order to uh, uh, repair the damage. And it was just, it was almost like living in opposite land. I mean, the thinking that the, um, 
Franco and his generals just they just assumed they were the natural government and they just twisted everything around and the elected government was um inconsequential to them they they had no respect for it whatsoever and anyone who fought on the republican army were automatically considered um traitors and a lot of people were shot the atrocities that happened i'm not even going to go into were just horrific and it was just it was um absolute chaos uh for a long time so i don't know and i just i i put some of that in car from stone and dream i want people to understand that um when you're fleeing something like that and you're not doing it arbitrarily i mean it's not like oh gosh i'm just going to run over to france and everything will be fine it was they were seriously they were terrified for their lives they lost everything every single thing they owned and uh, the french when they were coming across the french said they had diseases so they made them leave all of their property behind and that's why you see that one iconic piece of footage where um the uh, french soldier forces the spanish uh gentleman to uh release what he's gripping in his hand and it turned out what he was holding was a handful of spanish soil because he wanted to go back. And yeah. So it it was just it was an incredible time period and and the the way people were forced to move and I want to capture some of that in the novels and I think that's why I wanted Where Oblivion Lives to be set in the early thirties so that when you you get to carve from stone and dream you can see some of the contrast between how they were living before and now how they're having to live now on the run. And of course, all the parts about angels and, and what all being behind it is all um, made up. <laughs> the real bad guys, the real bad guys are us. I do appreciate that in the novels, you don't jump to the conclusion and make the reader think, oh, if it wasn't for the angels and devils and demons, nothing would have happened. You you, you clearly show at least the, the thunderclouds of what's coming in the Franco regime, because as you, as you had said, this is set in the early 30s. Before, and the, the, the events are just slowly starting to ramp up. The horrors have not yet launched, but we can kind of see them in the in the in the distance coming closer but you do make it clear that the angels and demons are a parallel to that conflict and the conflict of the second world war coming not the instigators themselves well and in, in some ways what i what i did was essentially was create a a mirror world you you have the events that are marching forward on what we call the mortal realm, and that's had to do with Hitler and Churchill and uh, Franco and Mussolini. And what I did was is I essentially constructed a, another layer that works sort of underneath them, set up of Guillermo and uh, his half-brother Jordi and 
Ilsa in Germany and Rousseau in France. And I have another one. I haven't made up my Italian <laughs> yet, but there will be an Italian Nafil who is, is in that same category. And they're all jockeying for position in the same way. And as they lose, it ships on the mortal realm. So it's a it was just kind of an interesting way to me, for me to kind of figure out how things came together. Um, cause that to me is what novels are. They're, they're just like a giant puzzle. And I just love solving the puzzle and trying to figure out the motivations behind the characters, um, and the motivations behind why they're doing things and why they do the things they do and how how we as people think and move. So it kind of helps me examine our motivations on a more on a closer level, I guess. I, I, I do agree your 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 novels going all the all the way back to uh the start are very character focused, character driven, character centered is what the characters do and how they interact with each other that really drives what happens in the in the in the plot and i do appreciate that depth of character that character development as characters have to grow change and adapt to the circumstances that they they cause and are caused amongst them and i do think that uh where oblivion lives does carry carry on and carry off from the three novellas quite nicely in that regard. Well, thank you. I I will be honest with you. The character-driven novels are mostly uh, the Stephen King influence on my writing. Because when I was very young, I read a lot of King, a lot of Stephen King, and really enjoyed his novels. And what I always enjoyed about his novels was, is no matter how inconsequential the character was, we we cared about them um, most of the time. And and that is that's a real difficult skill to have. And it's one thing that I tried really hard to bring forward in my books was, as I figured that. Everything has pretty much been done. You're going to have a hard time coming up with a new plot. But what you can come up with, if the, if I care about the characters, I can read the most rehashed, boring plot in the world and love the story. Because it's the characters that appeal to me personally when I'm reading a book. And so that's why I put so much effort into understanding them and personalizing everything that happens around them to make it a part of them and how they see the world and, and act and react in it. And I definitely agree going all the way back to Lucy and Katerina and Rachel and their three-sided relationship back in Missouri. I do, I do think that is a hallmark of your fiction. Yeah, yeah. So I want to thank you for coming on the show and talking about Where Oblivion Lives, which should be out as of the time of this broadcast. Where can readers find you on the Internet and elsewhere? Where do readers find me? Gosh, mostly on Twitter. But if they're really looking for me, they can find me at www.tfrohawk.com. 
And between that and Twitter, that's pretty much where I am all the time online. And when I'm not there, I'm kind of hunkered down in the writing minds. The novel, again, is Where Brilliant Lives. The author is Teresa Frohawk, and thank you for being on the show. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Stay frosty, everyone. Welcome to the Skiffy and Fanti Show. Today on Signal Boost, we have the fantabulous Alex Harrow. They are the author of the brand new space opera, Empire of Light, from Nine Star Press, and describe their writing as queerness with a chance of explosions. Welcome to the show, Alex. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. My pleasure. So I like to begin all of my Signal Boost with a chance to introduce yourself to our listeners and tell them about your work. So have at it. Tell us about Empire of Light. Oh, yeah, totally. So um, I'm a queer author writing queer, queer sci-fi. <laughs> I live uh, I live in Utah, so that's that's been a fun intro sometimes. Um, but yeah, Empire of Light um, is basically what I call gay firefly with magic. It's all about an assassin named Damien who pretty much takes out whoever the Empire wants him to take out in order to protect his friends and specifically his lover and psychokinetic partner, Eris, who has uh, a power called the voyance that gets him um, hunted down by the empire because they frown on um, explosive abilities that they can't control and oh yeah by the way this magic isn't pretty and shiny it is definitely going to kill you one way or another so Damien has to deal with that he uh, (laughs) tracks down his latest mark which was supposed to be a revolutionary named Rain who though turns it around and kicks his ass demands his help and says hey guess what you're going to help me with this revolution now uh, or I will take out your friends for you so um an interesting complicated relationship kind of blooms from there and uh damien ends up teaming up with rain um just in time for the empire to also catch up with him and so in order to save the guy he loves damien has to um make this revolution work even if it means getting way too close to rain and kind of ending up being torn between shooting him one one time and kissing him the next complicated relationships that is absolutely one of my favorite things to read in any book personally so that sounds exciting um i was wondering because as a queer non-binary person i know that queer representation is important to you and your work obviously and it should be important to everyone so can you tell me how that plays into your fiction and if there are any i guess tropes that you might specifically be working against in your writing oh yeah totally okay so first off um the reason that i kind of call my writing or refer to my writing as queerness with a chance of explosions is because that's that's what it is i have characters um all over the queer spectrum and they're usually like i the one trope that i'm really going against is the trope of tokenism because let's face it most of us queer people uh, come in flux or in, I don't know, rainbows of queerness, right? <laughs> uh, so there, there isn't ever just one. And so th- that's, that's been kind of like my driving force behind, um, wanting to write Empire of Light, which was actually kind of my, my way as a, as a baby queer in my, like this was kind of like in my early twenties when I started writing to kind of deal with this whole idea of wait, 
there need to be more books about us. Why don't I see queer people in uh, protagonist roles? Why don't I see queer people all over the place where it's not just like, oh, you're the one queer sidekick or you're the sassy gay friend or, oh, you're the tragic love story because, of course, you don't get a happy ending. And so but I also didn't want to shy away from um having bad things happening to my queer characters. However, those bad things have nothing whatsoever to do with their queerness. I really deliberately I wanted to avoid any sort of queer pain. Uh, so that's that's kind of how Empire of Light and the rest of my writing uh, came about, where Damien, the main character, really started out as uh, this person that I'm like, oh, yeah, I want to write about a queer action hero. And, oh, yeah, he's gay. He's also demisexual. He has a lot of uh, mental health issues. He deals with anxiety and kind of uh, panic attacks and things like that. So I definitely do um, maybe subconsciously write a lot of myself into my characters, but also kind of just look at representation all across the board. Like uh, Damien is a gay person of color. Eris is a pansexual sex worker who has this um, voyance ability that is essentially deadly. And I kind of uh, drew some parallels between that and kind of how people initially reacted to the HIV virus and, and so on. And so I just kind of decided, hey, let's let's use some of these themes that are very prevalent and very heavy in the queer community, but um, translate them into fantasy and sci-fi. And uh, so Empire of Light is kind of my, my sci-fi futuristic um, futuristic Earth take on this. Like, hey, what happens if um, we have all these characters and they have to deal with each other? And yeah, like their relationships do get messy and all of that. And um, yeah, there are a few non-binary characters in there as well. They're actually kind of my favorites. I'm like, <laughs> I might have to do spin-off stories on them. I already had some of my critique partners going like, hey, can we have of course, is uh, backstory. Course is this um, really snarky bartender in a bar called Tarantino's. That's kind of like this hole in the wall shithole bar <laughs> that is Tarantino movie themed because uh, <laughs> Chorus has this thing for old Earth action flicks, and Damien doesn't get any of the references like Pulp Fiction. He's like, no, they're all holding the guns wrong. What's even going on here? But I kind of just went with that and yeah chorus is this like really fun um polyamorous character who is non-binary uh and they're not like the only one either like i have quite a few supporting characters that are trans or non-binary some of them might be a little bit more subtle where it's like oh wait this person is wearing sparkly binder <laughs> like it doesn't and i'm not making an issue out of their gender identity whatsoever they're just there they're just part of this which is as it should be. I always laugh at the, you know, the the lone queer trope because I'm sitting in a family where we have a lone straight person and <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Yeah, and it just kind of goes like that. Like, I don't know. I, I feel like we find community, like even uh, as someone who is living kind of like in a more conservative space, especially when I first started writing Empire of Light, I was living not in Salt Lake City, which is kind of like the more liberal bubble of where I'm at. And uh, I... <laughs> I always say I started dating my wife out of spite because I was convinced that I couldn't be the only queer person who also who just kind of liked people because they were people around here. And then uh, 
got introduced to this whole networking group of people that was amazing. So that's kind of why found families, I think, uh, feature in all of my work. That's just a thing that I uh, try to put very front and center. And yeah, sometimes things go well and sometimes not so much. Like Empire of Light is a bit of the, the messy take to found family. That sounds awesome. So why space opera or, I mean, science fiction in general, but space opera more specifically in terms of what about this genre allows you to tell the stories in a way that you wouldn't be able to in a different subgenre necessarily? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't know, space opera or like this is kind of like Empire of Light is a space opera that is not set in space, if that makes sense. It's set oh. on, a, on a future Earth. So, but it is very space opera in feel. Like I, I definitely was inspired by things like Star Wars or Firefly that are, that are kind of leaning towards the space opera. But, um, the thing that I kind of wanted to do with this was, uh, use sci-fi tropes, but not go into really heavy, hard sci-fi, which I also love, but honestly, Honestly, I just didn't think I was the most um, qualified to to tell the story in a really heavy sci-fi setting. And um, honestly, I just kind of wanted to um, take some of the things that we're doing for our world, like using up its resources, uh, to the next level and go, okay, what if we had global wars breaking out over the lack of resources? What if... Um, the rifts that we already see in uh, our economy and our social structures go further than that. And uh, people get like pushed kind of to the, to the edges even more than they already are. And what happens if then um, a centralized government does take over and what does that do to your individuality? What does that do to um, what you have to do in order to exist in a world like that? So um, I just felt like this is very, very much something that we still deal with on earth like um i feel like being a german and being very history conscious i'm like yeah like things repeat themselves and and structures tend to kind of cycle through history and sometimes like get worse through history and that's just kind of uh where i feel sci-fi um and kind of like space opera-esque sci-fi really lent itself to that and i also just really wanted to play around with all kinds of different people and um setting that allows for all of these different people to feature in the story, which I didn't really feel um, would be the same way if this was like, I don't know, like a, let's say epic fantasy or even a contemporary thing. <laughs> like this just wouldn't work. I also really wanted to play with deadly magic. So, but it's kind of like deadly magic. That's superpowers. It's the whole like, Oh, you can blow shit up with your brain type of thing. Well, which is one of the most fun things and a power. <laughs> yes. I think a lot of people want these days. <laughs> Sometimes, yes, except it also gets you very much into trouble because people try to control you. And of course. Yeah, also this whole side effect of, like, you know, mental and physical death uh, is a bit of a problem. But right. I also really like just power systems that, that do come with a cost. Like, I know I have a lot of queer friends who are like, you know what? No, not all magic should come with a cost. And I'm like, oh, but it's fun because you get to be so mean to your characters. <laughs> I'm, I'm a terrible person. <laughs> Don't take me for this book, people. No, I I 100% agree. Magic without consequences just does not seem realistic to literally anything else that's true in life. Like, it seems like everything, every aspect of our being, every talent even, 
can come with consequences in some way, shape, or form. They maybe shouldn't necessarily, but when you throw in something like a, a power, um, it's sort of like wielding a gun. Wielding a gun should come with consequences. It does come with consequences. Driving a car, you know, all of these things that are, are big and powerful that might make life a little bit easier in some ways, uh, in terms of like guns with hunting, but when used incorrectly, obviously pose problems. Yeah, it, it, it causes this issue. And that's actually kind of a thread that, um, kind of, uh, weaves through Empire of Light as well, where Damien is an assassin, right? He, he shoots people, he kills them, but he also realizes, oh, like you, you don't necessarily only kill with guns. Like, uh, there are other characters that, that kill or do things in other ways that make him realize, like, hey, I am not so different from them. Like, his partner, his partner, Eris, is a sex worker, which he loves to do. And Damien kind of has to grapple with that, that he's he's basically with this person that also is with a lot of other people. And that causes some tensions for him as a, a demisexual person and as actually more so a person that tries to protect everyone around him, where he has to kind of come to grip grips with the fact that maybe he can't protect Eris from everything, but maybe he also needs to back off in uh, in certain places. But it's kind of like that parallel with like where this is what Eris does for to make a living and to to get fulfillment out of life. And oh, like Damien essentially is doing like much of the same things where he works for other people. He does uh, things that people don't necessarily feel are uh, okay, and um, they, they all kind of like carve out their niche and find like empowerment through it in different ways. So that's also something that I just kind of wanted to look into that it's not like, oh, because you're doing this, you are automatically the victim or we shouldn't like automatically see people as the victim that we have to shelter and protect when it's like, hey, you don't know what's empowering people. Absolutely. I was actually really excited to see that you were dealing with um, sex work in some way, shape, or form, because I think it's one of those things that so rarely gets positive portrayal, uh, especially in science fiction, where it so often is just an avenue to abuse sex workers. Yeah. And I hope that that's what's coming across. I definitely, there are definitely some relationships where it's like, oh, like Ayers isn't a relationship that started as kind of like an abusive sort of thing where uh, a member of the watch basically kind of like, uh, blackmailed him into this, but then he also comes back to this whole thing of like, hey, I get a lot out of this. Like, this might have been how this started, but that's not necessarily how it continued. Anyway, that's kind of spoilery, but first three chapters, you're getting there. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's definitely things that I'm a little bit out of my lane for sure. So I'm kind of hoping that that's uh, as as close to. Uh, non-harmful portrayal as I can make it. Like those are definitely things that uh, make me a little bit nervous about this book for sure. <laughs> it also doesn't follow like standard romance tropes. So someone goes into it expecting like your regular kind of like romance progression. This is not it. <laughs> <laughs> well, honestly, there are enough of those books probably. So that's fine yeah, with me. I love them. So. I know I love them exactly, but. There's room for variety. <laughs> okay, so uh, last question before we start closing out. I know this is part one of a series, hopefully. So without spoiling anything in either book, 
no challenge there. Where do you hope to take this series? Yeah, so um, right now I have it planned out more or less as a as a trilogy. It might be a bit of a more sprawling thing because I also have a deep and unabiding love for serials, like um, series that have novellas or short stories set in the same universe. So there's some maybe satellite colonies that I might establish <laughs> for Empire of Light as well. But right now, like the main um, arc is going to span three books, and the main arc very much has to deal with this idea of the voyance and how do we deal with it because in book one it is very much uh, set up as this thing that is destructive and um essentially a death sentence and so in future books uh there's some hooks on okay how do we uh, like is, is this something that that can be fixed is this something that should be fixed and how are people trying to exploit people with um um, with the voyance, how um, like should we uh, as a government step in and like register voyance or uh, like employ them or like what what is going to happen with that? And so uh, Damien, um, Eris and Rain will be very much like characters that will kind of drive that that movement towards. Uh, so what do we do with this and uh, how are we exploring that and what does that mean for the world we're living in and what does that mean for people with powers? So um yeah, it's kind of go- uh, going to have an ongoing arc, too, of what does the political landscape here look like and uh, what do Damien's relationships look like? Because he sure has a lot of things to work through. There's there's a lot of stuff. I'm not going to get spoilery, but uh, yeah. <laughs> Sounds wonderful to me. So why don't you let our listeners know where to find you and your work and any upcoming appearances that you might be having? Yeah, totally. So um, I am the loudest probably on Twitter. <laughs> My uh, Twitter handle is Alex Harrow SFF for science fiction and fantasy. Uh, that's also my handle on any other social media. So if you look for me on Instagram or Facebook, which I use, but a little bit less than than Twitter, um, you'll find me there as well. Uh, same for I think Pinterest. So if you want to kind of see what inspires the things I write, um, I have many many a pinterest board for that <laughs> and uh yeah i also uh blog regularly on my website alexharrow.com um i actually host a, a weekly feature where i interview uh other queer authors called queering up your bookshelf and it just features a different author every week to talk about writing inspiration in their books uh and my next appearance actually will be my launch party um and signing together with Sarah Chorn, we decided to um, have it on March 1st, since uh, my friend Sarah also has a book coming out on the 19th this month. And so I decided, hey, why not team up? Because community kind of means a lot for, to me. And I feel like it's a little less, I don't know, just putting like one person out there if you team up with someone. So March 1st at 7.30 at High Point Coffee, which is uh, in West Jordan, Utah. So if you uh, find me on Twitter or Facebook, I have the details there. Um, but I'll also be at some upcoming conferences like the League of Utah Writers Spring Conference um, and possibly some fandom cons. I'm currently looking at Klexacon. So I'll be there. I really want to. That is like my dream convention these Mm -hmm. days. It looks so amazing. (laughs) So good. I might just go uh, as a guest. We'll see. Like I might have a table there or might just like go as a guest since I have 
few friends that will be there. And I'm like, hey, I will just tag along and learn from you. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's kind of what's upcoming for me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today, Alex. I really appreciate it. Thank you. This was a ton of fun. Absolutely. And thank you listeners for joining us today for Signal Boost. Make sure you go check out Alex's work and buy a copy of Empire of Light. If you would like to support this show, you can go to patreon.com slash skiffyandfanty or find us on Twitter at skiffyandfanty, our webpage skiffyandfanty.com, or you can even send us an email at skiffyandfanty at gmail.com. The intro music for this podcast was taken from Rock Thing by Creo. You can find out more about their music on freemusicarchive.org.